This is Joe Trezza, Cardinals beat writer for MLB.com, and you're listening to The Conversation with Tommy Weber. From the Gotham Podcast Studios in the heart of downtown New York City, Tribeca, the greatest city in the world, my hometown. This is The Conversation with Tommy Weber. I am Tommy Weber, and that, of course, was Keith, Mick, and the Rolling Stones, 1978, the greatest rock and roll band in the world. We've got a great show for you today. Got a kid. He's a kid. Well, he's a grown man now. I know him since he's probably 15 years old or so. Got Joe Trezza. He is the beat writer for MLB.com. He is covering the St. Louis Cardinals. He's been in spring training all summer. I've been reading his tweets and all the stuff that he's put on social media. I feel like a proud parent having uh, having Joe here. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, Joe and I um, actually Joe wrote a really cool article about us when we were with the Tide, the Staten Island Tide on Staten Island. Joe is a Staten Island Tech graduate, great high school, one of the best high schools in the country. Went on to the University of Missouri, journalism major, big-time journalism school. I believe he's the only guy from Staten Island to ever actually go to Missouri at all, let alone go to the University of Missouri. Um, and Joe wrote a wonderful article about us, and it was really flattering, and it was really cool. And, and, and there's something I'm sure Joe's going to rem- uh, remember this. I invited Joe to my office to thank him, and uh, he couldn't have been, I don't know, 19 uh, and I said, uh, you know, I always had a lot of Tide gear in my office, and I said, Joe, here's a hat and a T-shirt, and Joe said, I can't take it, and I was like, wow, wow, the kind of journalistic integrity that he exhibited as such a young kid, I am not surprised that he is, uh, he has ascended to kind of the top of the food chain, being the beat writer. I want to welcome aboard Joe Trezza. How are you, Joe? Thanks, Tommy. It's it's, it's great to be here. And yeah, just a little bit about about that. I I, I didn't want to seem rude. I was very flattered. I just you know I didn't want to sell out so early. That's all. I want to be. <laughs> well, you still have time, Joe. You still got plenty yeah, well, of time. That's, that's what I'm saying. I have, I have a lot. I have a lot of free stuff to take. Uh, it's still in my future. I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't feel like the. We, I don't know. Well, here's when, he, when you go to journalism school, you get a lot of principles kind of drilled into I'm your head and all that sure. stuff. And it's not always the way things go on in the real life in in the real world. And, I was just starting out, but that was a great. That was a great story for me. It was, it was a good story for you. Um, I, I, I was I was happy to tell it because I remember being one of those kids uh, that you were instructing, and you know, kind of getting that message and, and 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 responding very positively to it. So you guys are doing good, doing good stuff, and you're still doing great stuff. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Tell us a little bit. You know, I I, uh, I teach at St. John's in a sport management school, so I have a lot of young people who. want to follow your career path, you know, who wants to be a general manager, who wants to be a writer, who wants to be in broadcasting, obviously, uh, sport management is a hot field at St. John's, we have a gigantic sport management program, and I've been doing it for five, almost six years now, Uh, give us a little insight about, you know, your journey, if you will, I don't love that word, but it is a journey, and tell us how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so as you mentioned, it was kind of a, um, like like an untraditional route, at least geographically, um, uh, one of those, one of the major decisions I made was, was transferring from a city school when I was 19, the city, uh, Queens College, the city university of New York, um, all the way out to the university of Missouri, which is basically like going from earth to Mars. Mm-hmm. If you can, you know, in, in terms of 
just a culture and like just the atmosphere, the type of environment and all that. And I really didn't understand what I was getting into, but I knew it was a good school for journalism and I took a leap and I wanted to kind of do that. And, um, and it took me really all across the country and then back to New York and then back out. And uh, one of the things I've, that, that, that I think was really valuable was just getting a lot of um, new and kind of kind of twisted perspective. Right? So it's everything you think you know as a kid and then you go to a different environment and it kind of floors you and you learn all about that. And then you come back and you see both of them from, you know, in, in kind of a different way. And I think that was super, super valuable. And if you want to work in sports, you really have to be, you have to have those that ability to kind of change perspectives because you're going to be working with people from all walks of life and not only all parts of this country, but parts of other countries. And um, you also have to be willing to kind of uproot yourself and to kind of um, do things maybe, you know, in, in different places than you had, had expected, right? So if you want to be a beat writer for a baseball team, there are only 30 of them, and there aren't jobs that open up. Um, at least at the same time, there aren't many jobs that open up, period. There aren't many jobs, period. So your, your first job, you know, may have to be in Minnesota or it may have to be in Seattle. And they frankly don't care if you're from New York or you're from Maine or you're from Florida and you want to stay there. It's, then, then you just don't work. You know, you, you don't get the job. You don't take it. So um, it's very hard to tailor this life kind of like to your background. You kind of have to be able to tailor yourself to the industry and to the profession. So um, I think that would be the first thing that I would tell myself if I was back in school, be ready to, to change and be ready to go go see people, go meet people and go experience things that require you to change, um, be okay with it. Um, and also don't be intimidated by the people who are already in those positions because at the end of the day, um, they're really just people. Like we, we, we grew up watching sports and watching athletes and glorifying them. Now we glorify executives, broadcasters, and all the, all these different types of people. And um, then you get to meet them, and you, you kind of realize that, yeah, they're smart and they're passionate and they're good at what they do. But at the end of the day, they're just people who show up work, you know, just like you trying to do their job. Um, and that's that's a tough kind of that's 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 a tough thing to break down when you're a young person. You have to kind of get over that. Yeah, we live in a um, world. I I try to yeah. caution my students as to who they genuflect to. You should be very cautious about thinking about the fallacy. It's the fallacy of rank. You think that just because a guy, and I say this with all due respect to anybody who's a major league manager, but there are guys sitting in major league dugouts that are managing teams that aren't very good at managing teams. Just because they're in that dugout doesn't mean they're one of the best 30 guys. A lot of other factors go into how you ascend in any industry. I mean, I'm sure if you sat in at a meeting at some company and you thought, wow, this guy's really smart because he's the CEO, you might be disappointed. So don't be so quick to anoint people as special because when you sort of get into that milieu, you start to realize, hmm, maybe not, maybe not. And I think also coming from the background you, I, and many people like us come from, you know, your Italian kid from Staten Island, me from Brooklyn, same kind of thing, very, very close to parents. Um, I think your, your, uh, your trip is, is really noteworthy because you come from a culture where, you know, we keep people very close to us. People don't travel a lot. You know, you're not supposed to, very few Italian kids from Staten Island are going to work in Iowa or in Montana or in Nevada or, and, and, and it's a very, very difficult cultural leap to make, uh, and, and speak to that. How difficult was that for you? 
Well, you're definitely correct in saying that uh, it, it's it's a very insular type of type of provincial world, right? Mm-hmm. Which is strange because it's in the middle of this giant, uh, huge city, with yep. huge eclectic city with with a ton of cultures and this big melting pot. And we um, kind of have a habit. Maybe it's in physically living on an island that, that might be part yes. of it, but a lot of it is also cultural, um, and it's 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 familial, and it's and it's part of being working class for so long, and from being from being immigrants, and um, we we kind of stick to ourselves, right? And we kind of we kind of um, stick to what we know and what we find comfort in and what we find safety in, um, and I think a lot of that is socioeconomic, and a lot of that is um, sociological, and also um, kind of, kind of, kind of hints on a few other facts, but not, not to get too deep into it. But you're right; it's it, it was an adjustment for me to kind of break out of this thinking, like, okay, if I want to do something that's a little bit different, um, I have to act a little bit differently, right? And that's not necessarily wrong. I, a lot of times when I was growing up here, I remember, and it wasn't it's not, not so much anybody's fault. It's not my family's fault. I have supportive parents and great, great family. Um, that's proud of me, and that, that, that you know the reason that I was able to, to go chase any dream. Um, but there's this kind of underlining, okay, you, you know, stay in line, file rank, do what you're told. Yep. Kind of um, even growing up in school, if you didn't, if you didn't kind of lay down and abide by what was, you know, there was there were ranks there. What was cool? What was this? What was that? Then it wasn't nece- it wasn't necessarily celebrated, right? It was kind of put down. Yep. Um, and, and discouraged. And, and get a job um, with benefits, right? Get a job with benefits yeah, and something security. That's, something that's safe, right? right. Something right. that's, and I guess that you know you can kind of see where they're coming from. Um, that's you know, but but the the, the kind of the, the thinkings of the of the of the generations kind of change, you know, as yes, as people rise in socioeconomic status no and the question. world kind of gets bigger and smaller at the same time, and technology uh, technology expands, so. Yes, that that has been a struggle for me, and was when I was younger too. To kind of tell myself, look, I may be taking a leap or like following something that I'm interested in that may be different, and it's good. It's not necessarily bad. Like I'm not letting anybody down. Right. I'm not doing anything wrong. There's this just quick, quick twitch kind of instinct that if you if you don't do one of three or four things or think about politics in a certain way or value this over that, then you're necessarily wrong or bad, and that's um, I think that that's uh, one of the more insidious uh, kind of cultural um, idea, kind of overarching themes of where I'm from, which which I don't really like. But an- another part of it is that we're not the only place that 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 this exists, right? Like when I went in the middle of the country, I had to get used to them, but they also had to get used to me, and um, they had to kind of. Uh, well, some of them didn't, but there was a there was a, an adjustment period where they had to kind of hinge their prejudices a little bit. Right. And, There's and, a Midwest and, provinciality as well. It's not endemic absolutely. only to the Northeast and to Staten Island and Brooklyn. And yeah, there's no question. Absolutely. So, so right. let me so that, let me ask was, you this. Let me ask you this, and those are great insights, especially you know the great insights and observations that apply to life. And I love the whole universal theme of of most of this stuff. That's why in in my class it's about sports for about thirty minutes, and then. It always becomes about the culture because nothing happens in a vacuum. And, and um, I, I want to get to a couple of things that uh, on the baseball side. What I'd love to get is uh, your insights vis-a-vis your work with the Cardinals. We're talking to Joe Trezza, who is the Major, MajorLeagueBaseball.com uh, beat writer for the St. Louis Cardinals. 
Um, about to begin his first season as the season opens up this week. Cardinals are in New York um, for, uh, was it a three-game set, Joe? Uh, yes, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. Is great, great. off day right after opening day on Friday. What, um, taking the temperature of Major League Baseball players with regard to certain issues, such as, uh, and I, I, I really love Matt Carpenter as a player, and I like his attitude and his whole perspective, and I know that he had kind of uh, an epiphany this winter about uh, what kind of player he was. Um, what, how, do players re- how do the players feel necessarily about the micromanaging of every at-bat, launch angle, exit velocity, and measuring everything to the nth degree, which is a very, very 21st uh, century phenomenon? Yeah, so I would say that it varies player to player, um, and it kind of is based on where that player started off, right, in their career. So, like, Carpenter is an extremely unique example in the sense that he was an elite hitter before all of this stuff kind of yes, came he was. to the mainstream and came to the forefront. Not only was he an elite hitter then, he was an elite hitter in an era where hitting was really, really suppressed. Like, a, if you, yeah. I, it, it seems so hard to think about now after a year in which they set the, the league set the league run record and league strikeout record and all these runs are being scored. Every pitch seems to be being hit out of the that only like four or five years ago in 2013, 2012, 2014, baseball had a giant problem in the sense that uh, runs were at an all-time low. Offenses were at an all-time low. Pitching right. was dominating like never before. Right. Everybody wanted uh, to really be the 2015 the Kansas City Royals. Well, that's the thing. Like they, they didn't. They, they were looking for power, and the Royals won because everybody else was there. They kind of zigged when everybody else was zagging. Exactly. And if you look at like why that's why the Giants won all those championships. Absolutely, absolutely. And the interesting thing is that you would think that once a team had success that way, the rest of the league would copy them, and that's typically what happens. Except in this case, the the league did the opposite. The, the league did the thing that was more cost-effective and had an high, a higher upside, uh, which is basically look for power, right? So it's really difficult to build a team like the Royals where you have 9 to 12 elite bat-to-ball type guys. Right. Those, those prospects are hard to find. Um, it's easier to find a lot of guys who walk, guys who hit for power. And Mark, guys who Mark Trumbos. Mark Trumbos. Guys like that. Yeah, I, that, that's a good example. Ponderous, I, I like of like, um, ponderous guys who don't defend. Get on base, hit, right. hit thirty-five home. But but what what you do see now is a proliferation of, you know, Chris Bryant's. Who, I mean, for all of the hoopla over a guy like Chris Bryant, he drove in seventy-six right. runs last year. Seventy-six right. runs. Now, let's face it, there are probably guys at Wrigley Field who, if they played every day, would drive in sixty-five runs from the stands. Seventy-six runs. Ten years ago, that would you would be at the bottom of the heap. This is a guy who is one of the faces of Major League Baseball. Yeah, yeah. I, well, okay. So, I, I don't, uh, w- w- what exactly is, is is the question? Is it about the launch angle, or is it about well, the, I mean, you know, when you yeah. when, when you're around the players, are these guys as you know? Are they drinking as much of the Kool Aid as there is being drunk on Twitter and on social media and in batting cages across America? And especially at the amateur and college level, where these guys really believe they've uncovered the Rosetta Stone of hitting, and it is hitting the ball in the air. Let's hit the ball in the air. It is funny because you don't realize just how how much these elite athletes athletes are kind of susceptible to 
um, like uh, trends and, mm-hmm. and and how much their in- insecurity is, is, is they're very of, fragile, uh, susceptible to that. But it, but in the same kind of way that like you know uh, regular people would be to a stylish haircut, or absolutely like that right. Like it's it's the same type of thing, especially when there's money involved. And and really the the, the crux of the whole issue is that guys are seeing uh, players cash in on changing their swing in a way that sacrifices average, sacrifices contact, and um, and, and, and boosts their home run total. Now, now that there's, like, there's a lot that goes into this, yes, and I think that the, this weird free agent market that we just got out of might kind of go a long way to correcting this, like overcorrecting the trend a little bit because you saw guys who set career highs in home runs, set franchise records in home runs, and were kind of, went kind of limping back on one-year contracts by the time the offseason was over, um, and the market did not reward power because it became a commodity. And so, the, the, I think the thing to remember is that we were like there were a lot of people in the game waiting for this kind of financial reckoning mm-hmm. to come, and that's really the impetus of any change, right? It's it's what are guys going to get paid for? What are they rewarded for? Um, it's not an, an exact example, but I think you're going to see a switch in the way that relief pitchers are compensated that kind of deviates from the save statistic um, because now teams and GMs and managers are starting to realize that games aren't necessarily always saved in, in the They're saved in the sixth, they're saved in the seventh, they're saved in the eighth. And there's a lot of types of pitchers that can do that, right? It's not this mindset where it's not always like, okay, we need a special pitcher to pitch the ninth or it's a special skill set. But now, granted, there are types of pitchers who are better at it, and more equipped to get laid outs, but you see a guy like Andrew Miller being deployed in a different way. Chad Green is more, a lot more valuable now than he would have been four years ago. His right. role might not have existed four years ago. Um, and you saw big and closers getting paid big money because they had, let's say, blanket stats of like 40 saves. That's probably going to happen less um, because teams are just going to value it less. Okay, let me throw something and at therefore, you. And therefore, those guys are going to be used in different roles. And now- so the game is going to change that way. You, you've, you've opened, as they say on, on any crime show, you've opened this up for cross-examination. So let me throw something at you that <laughs> is, that is literal heresy, okay? I, I'm a Yankee fan. Um, you know, I, 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 a chance encounter meeting Mickey Mantle when you're seven years old makes you a Yankee fan for life by default. You have to be a Yankee fan. Uh, the Yankees' dynasty run in the mid-'90s into the early 2000s was unprecedented, as, ma- as many of their other runs were, you know, five World Series in a row, 49-54, right. to 54 and all that. St- anyway, all the records regarding wins the Yankees have. Um, I would say, as a, uh, you know, and I, would le- I know I'm going to get killed for this, Mariano Rivera is the greatest, most overrated pitcher of all time. And, and let me say this. Here's why I say this. He is the greatest one-inning pitcher Ever. His performance in 2003 in the Aaron Boone game is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen of a pitcher at the right time, in the right place, uh, pitching the Yankees basically to the World Series. But, but, if I did an autopsy of the Yankee victories from 96 to 2000, uh, I just wouldn't have Mariano Rivera at the top of my list as as far as who's the most valuable. Um... First of all, in 96, he was not the closer, so he can't get credit for that. And when you're sweeping your way through 98, 99, 2000 ostensibly, how valuable is a guy who comes in, pitches one inning, has a 3 nothing lead, never has anybody on base, 
and get you out of that. I mean, I, I, I love Mariano Rivera and his artistry and his virtuosity and his ability to command that cutter. It is amazing, but at the end of the day, if there's one position that the Yankees have never had to blink on since Mariano Rivera has been gone, it's been the closer. The Yankees have not been pining for a ninth-inning pitcher since Mariano Rivera left. Um, and, and I think it goes to what's happening in baseball today, and nothing is new. Casey Stengel in the 50s used to say the most important outs in the game come maybe in the sixth inning. Why would I have my best pitcher waiting until the ninth inning when the outs I right. need to get are the two outs with second and third in the sixth inning where the game is about to go one way or the other? And I think baseball might be slow on the uptake, but if Casey Stengel was doing this in the 50s, what does it say to the power of, as you alluded to, fashion and trend influencing literally how organizations construct themselves? Because they have, over the last 10 years, so overvalued guys who pitch one inning, and now all of a sudden they're waking up and saying, you know what, like you know Terry Francona did with Andrew Miller, why would I, wait for, why would I lose the game in the sixth inning when I could win it in the sixth inning and use my best pitcher. Right. I, I, I think you make a really good point about that fact that a lot of these ideas that are, that, that are, that are kind of viewed as being uh, cutting, cutting edge aren't necessarily so new, right? And now this is, let me just preface it by saying, well, let's not take anything away from Mariano Rivera's no, career. Magnificent. He's a good pitcher. Magnificent. It has nothing to do with him at all. It has everything to do with the construction of the stat and yep. the way that the, the, the depth pole is used and, and all this. Um, now, that said, you're right. This isn't exactly a novel concept that that the biggest outs aren't always in ninth inning, right? And along those lines, Chris Bryant got his swing from his dad, right. who was taught it from – Ted Williams taught Chris Bryant's dad Chris Bryant's swing. Right. So this, this get-the-ball-in-the-air type – Really, really, what he's saying is keep the bat flat through the zone, right? And don't right. Down, right. So it's not—it's not exactly a novel concept. It's really just the marketing of it, and and just the way that it's presented has been has been different. And the one thing that is different and new is the fact that every team is now quantifying these yes. these concepts. That's the thing that didn't exist in the '60s, and the '70s, and the '80s, and the '90s, and to to an extent. Um, the beginning of this century as well. Like teams have reams of data on it that mm -hmm. basically prove these concepts, right? So there isn't much differentiation between how teams are being constructed and how players are being utilized. And so we've reached this kind of stagnant point of strategy where you no know, these concepts new. The new part of it is that everybody is not only aware of them but can't argue with them or or kind of deviate from them anymore. Um, and that's why we've hit kind of a stagnant era of strategy where a lot of teams will admit now that they're looking for the next, the next thing that separates them, right? You talk to GMs, talk to the, the GM of the Cardinals, Michael Gersh was on a podcast on our site the other day, uh, wide ranging conversation like this. And uh, he admitted, he was like, look, we used to value players differently, right? That's why we had an advantage organizations and I think what he was alluding to was the fact that they reached a point where they, they wouldn't sign Albert Pujols they wouldn't extend the offer to Albert Pujols and they let Albert Pujols walk and he was in the prime of his career and they had 
ways to kind of determine that maybe he wouldn't keep up the production or that they had gotten enough, all the value that they could out of that particular asset. Mm -hmm. And that did give them an advantage over other teams because they'd be hindered by his contract right now and be a completely different organization. No question. Now he's basically saying, look, we, now all the teams, whatever it is, whether you're valuing a draft pick or you're valuing defensive positioning or you're valuing um, an ability to, to locate uh, where in the strike zone hitters are weakest, whatever it is. Every team has the technology, every team has the data, and we're all playing with the same deck of cards now. And so where's the next thing? Um, Except and that... Are, they, they're, they're really scratching the surface on where to get it, like they're doing... They're, they're trying to find it in areas of, of player performance, like sleep studies and nutrition and things right. like this, um, but they really don't know where it's going to come yet. Yeah, I, I mean, we are going to get to the day where you will have not only exit velocity and launch angle on the screen of a television, you're going to have guys' heart rate, respiration, oxygen intake, sugar levels. Uh, but here's the, here's the, here it is, though. What's the cost-benefit? Because if the, if the benefit isn't ridiculously high, you are putting an awful lot of energy, time, money, and resources into scoring four more runs a season or eight more. What are you really getting out of this? And, and if history is our best teacher, why wouldn't you go back and see how the best teams 20 years ago won? And see if you can, would you not want a team constructed like the 1998 Yankees who walked a lot, hit for incredibly high average, didn't hit tons of home runs, but scored billions of runs? played great defense, and won championships. Why wouldn't you try to replicate that when that's already been successful? And here's one other thing about the data that I would ask. Data is only good if it's a predictor of the future. And if the data could predict the future, then horse racing and the casinos would be out of business. Because what data can't do is give you context. And I know nobody likes the stolen base anymore, but ask Brian Roberts and the Red Sox, if they like the stolen base. Because in 2004, if he doesn't steal second base after Mariano Rivera walks Kevin Millar in the worst walk of all time, of all the people in the world, you walk. You walk Kevin Millar, right? Right. It's, it's about context. That 90 feet is the most precious 90 feet maybe in the history of baseball because it changed the direction of a franchise. They were going to fire Terry Francona, and they were going to break up a team that had a lot of bad guys on it. Instead, what happens? They get a lucky rain out, they get a bounce on a Tony Clark double, and they wind up beating the Yankees in an unprecedented fashion, and history has changed by virtue of it. So it's what the data can't do is it can't give you what to do in any one given set of circumstances. It can only tell you that the dice has a one in six chance of rolling one every time you do it. Right. Well, I, I think I think what their counter argument to that would be that would be if we don't have the data at least as a benchmark uh, or as a as a like as a place to get to a certain standard secure uh, known level of production, then then we're already not only behind the eight ball but we're behind. There are 29 other clubs in an irresponsible way, right? So, but are you? Um, but are you in fact? Yeah, I, it, it's you know it, it's a structure in place that that they see that the teams view it as a way to kind of keep up with the market, like 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 the, the baseline way of keeping up with with the rest of the industry. And you know, I'm not sure if I if I necessarily you know blame them for that, but I think you're right in the sense that. Um, Staying to it in a hard and fast way sometimes 
sometimes takes what what you can have as a as an advantage, right? Say say your your club is um, is uniquely skilled at that you, know, you, you have you have you have a unique number of of, of faster players, right? And maybe the data means something a little different to your club, right? right. Maybe if you're not supposed to to if, if the data tells you to not try to steal a base unless you're 80% successful, maybe your runners are fast enough to where that number's 85. So if you're operating at an 80% uh, caution rate, then then that or maybe it's 02. To you, yeah. Maybe it's 02 yeah. on a batter who's left-handed and he's face, facing Clayton Kershaw, and the reality is he's got a almost zero percent chance of getting a hit here. So let's try to get him into scoring position so that if he does hit a bloop single into left field, it's a run against Clayton Kershaw. That stolen base is far more valuable. I don't really care about what the odds are. If I can get that base, I need that base desperately in that circumstance. And if you extrapolate your very eloquent logic that it's about doing something differently, I would say that the fact that everybody does it and everybody does it in the same way renders it on its face something that if I were in an organization— I would start to think differently about like like how could I do it differently? Maybe right. not be so reliant on the data. Right, and I think when when you ask what the cost benefit of it is, I think part of the cost is is the aesthetic right of the sport. Yes, um, I think part of the cost is the is the pace of play issue, which I think is misnamed, and I think the commissioner would would agree with me that it's. It's more of a rate of action issue instead of a pace of play issue. Like, well, that example, sounds very 21st um, century, Joe. <laughs> yeah, but, but but think about it this way, right? Like fans don't really care if the game is three hours and five minutes long or two hours and 59 minutes long, right? They care that there's large rafts of dead dead, Absolutely. dead radio no time, question. right? Like in between every pitch no or question. in between every ball and play, right? It's like hitting you pause. a really, really right. exciting game that's three and a half hours long. Those World Series games last year. Nobody was saying, oh, they're so long. You know, <laughs> they were incredible. Absolutely. Because they were. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think part of the, the cost is the aesthetic of it. Um, you know, I think another part of the cost is the fact that you're the, the, the people that the players that the that the air ball revolution is going to affect the most is not those. Um, it's not the Daniel Murphy's. It's not the Josh Donaldson's. It's not the Miguel Cabrera's, the guys who are swinging kind of in that way anyway, and who have the strength and ability to perfect with an incredibly difficult uh, physical art, right? It's, it's those other tier guys. It's those guys who made, made the big leagues. If they could shorten up with two strikes, save some at-bats, and they were in an organization that valued that. Like, those guys aren't going to make the big leagues anymore. They're going to get passed up by the guy like who can hit, who can maybe run into 20, uh, a year for three years, and then the league figures him out, and then he's replaceable, right? So that like, there's that lower, bar right, right, gets, wrong place, right? right time, right place, wrong time, right. kind of thing. Absolutely, it's all about there time. There are a lot of these guys in the minors now who are kind of of a, uh, they, they were just born into the wrong era. Absolutely, but they're more skillful than the guys who, I mean, just 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 numbers wise, they they do things that are maybe that clubs consider less valuable, but there are fewer of them because their skill set is harder to replicate than there are guys who can hit 25 in the big leagues and strike out 150 times. Right. It's why you see college guys spending all day long in the weight room, 
regardless of their size, because they need to hit the ball further, they think, when in fact what it does, it actually cripples them because it takes away what their real advantage was to begin with, which might have been a skill that they don't think is as much in fashion. So they try to become different players. So now you have a lot of five foot ten guys, 150 pounds, who look like weightlifters, who now can't play a position yeah. and don't really hit the ball that much further anyway. Uh, and, right. and, and it really has let, – let me ask you, we're talking with Joe Trezza. We're going to take a break right now. Uh, Joe Trezza, beat writer, MLB.com, St. Louis Cardinals. We're taking a break. We'll be right back. One thing I'd like you to take a look at, hashtag 4Mom. Braden Bishop and Hunter Bishop. Hunter played for us in the Cape this year. He's a center fielder at Arizona State. Braden Bishop is a top prospect in the Seattle Mariners organization. Established a 4Mom charity, which is a fight for awareness and against Alzheimer's as the Bishop's battle uh, Alzheimer's right now. Uh, Braden and Hunter's mom is suffering from that terrible disease. So, Hunter, uh, you're never far from our thoughts and prayers. Just check it out. Go online. Say hello. Give some support. Yeah. Tony's sitting down in the diner right now. Carmela's there. Meadows Park in the car. Steve Perry, Journey. The final episode in the classic series, The Sopranos. We are here with my friend Joe Trezza, the beat writer for MLB.com, St. Louis Cardinals. He's followed the Cardinals all spring training. We are really in the weeds here with a lot of great baseball issues. Joe, I want to get to one that... You alluded to, and the commissioner, I have my issues. I would love to be on the inside of some of these conversations. Um, I'd like to know how, with all those fancy educations up on Park Avenue, and um, the best they could do for instant replay is what I consider uh, an unmitigated disaster. Uh, the optics of it don't work. It, uh, it's, I just can't believe that all those guys got into a room and the best idea they could come up with is with all the technology we have, to stop the game, have the old kind of overweight crew chief who's always seems to be at first base, <laughs> and have the guy who looks like the hot dog vendor jump out of the stands by third base, have him come running all the way in, two guys put on a headset, and we wait a minute and 20 seconds or whatever it might be or two minutes to find out that my glove touched the shoelace of a guy stealing second base, a call that nobody really cares about. Um, I just cannot believe that in this day and age uh, we would get something that optically is so unappealing and that really uh, messes with the rhythm of the game. Speak to me about that. I, this is something I will push back on okay. uh, with. Please do. Um, I, don't, I think that um, I'm not sure how many years now it's, it's been in, maybe three, four, five, mm -hmm. something like that, but um, it, you, I, I picture a game with, with, without it and with some of these egregious and game-changing miscalls that, uh, that would have been really just let slide before, right? Like there are – what I think that people and, – and, and, and I think you would realize this because you've been on the field at such, at such a high level. Uh, I think people underestimate how quickly the game – the speed of the game happens on the field, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's very easy from the, from the living room couch or from the yep. even, even close in the stands or in the upper deck to, to not really appreciate the speed of the game um, and how difficult it is to officiate because there's so much downtime. And then 
those you know those large swaths of, of downtime are kind of interrupted by quick mm-hmm. bursts of you know necessary and exact and precise precision. So it's it's an extremely difficult job, um, and it's a job that is probably too difficult without okay. you know some kind of safety net behind it. Okay. Um, I really do think that it, it brings just, just yeah. Are, are there kinks in, in in the system? Like probably, you know, should they should they announce the calls like they do in the NFL games? Probably, right? That's something that can engage people more and just keep everybody aware of what's happening. Um, I, there are things to iron out, sure, um, but I think overall, really, it's hard. It's it's really hard to be modern in, in a game and in a time where you know one mistake and it's all over the news, and, and, and it could shift the pennant race and the fortunes of, of these billion-dollar corporations, which, mm-hmm. which essentially is what teams are. Like, I, I don't know. I, I just don't I, – I think you're being a little harsh, and I think that if we didn't have it, uh, that can of worms you were talking about earlier would open up in, in unpredictable ways. Well, I, 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 I was careful not to say I didn't want it. I just can't believe that I, by myself – in 30 seconds, could come up with a far better, more efficient system. First of all, um, we have technology where, you know, a guy in a mud hut in Afghanistan can listen to your game in real time. I can't believe that the crew chief just doesn't have a bug in his ear or something where uh, he's la- he's told the guy's safe or the guy is out. That's number one. The, the, the kind of orchestration of it all, to me, uh, really serves. If I was on the field, that would drive me crazy. Number one. Um, number two is I would vest the players and the teams, the clubs. I would vest the players uh, with some skin in the game with respect to calling for replays. Because right now, replays are basically I might as well do it. I would stop all of the waiting for the guy upstairs in the clubhouse to tell me what to do. I would make it so that only players could call uh, for instant replay. Uh, and it has to be done automatically. So if you're a runner and you think you're safe, you make that call immediately, and then I would have a time limit, and it would basically be a minute because here's what I say. If it takes more than a minute, then it's too close as far as I'm concerned. I want to rule out the Don Denkinger call and the Jim Joyce call. Those are the calls I really want to rule out. And if I were baseball, ceremonially, I would have reversed. The first reverse call would have been for me to go back and reverse the Jim Joyce call and give that kid his perfect game that he really did pitch. That was one of the worst, most egregious calls I've ever seen. And I will say right, so the, the cost benefit, right? Is that you can't like, you, you have to get rid of, you have to make it so those don't happen anymore. Right. That, that has to be right. But that call takes main... 30 seconds. That's a 30 second call. That's a call that I, I think sometimes when you attribute so much importance to it, and then you have 12 guys at Chelsea who think that their hand surgeons flown in to like, put back the fingers of a cellist when in reality, look, it's close, he's safe, he's out. I think most calls call themselves. And I think that if you polled people, and I know, I know that Major League Baseball has a gag order when it comes to instant replay and umpires, and I understand that. They don't, you never hear anybody on the other side of instant replay or on the other side of the umpires. Because for me, what instant replay has told me is that the umpires need to be held to a higher standard because you can't be getting 49% of the calls that are close reversed because those are the most important calls. And yes, is it difficult? But that's why, in my opinion, if I were going to automate anything, I'd automate the strike zone because they're not good on balls and strikes. They're just not. They're not good enough. You can't miss 20% of the close calls. 
And that's the easiest to automate. We have great technology that could automate the strike zone. You would relieve all arguments and you would take away something that has been a pet peeve of mine, this personalized strike zone. He's a highball umpire. He likes the ball down. Well, there is one strike zone. And if you really want to speed up pace of play, you would have something where, you know, a little bug in the guy's ear, it beeps, strike one, strike two. The umpires would still stay there for check swings and everything else. Yeah, but it's not one strike zone. It's not because there's not one size of hitter and there's not one hitter who stands at, at the same uh, exact same that's, uh, that's correct. distance away from the plate. It is relative else. to the hitter, but it shouldn't be relative to the umpire. Yeah. Well, look, um, you, you made a lot of points. I don't exactly know which one to get at. Uh, I, I think what I'm going to start with is though um, your your kind of distaste for how how quickly the system, the replay system, goes about. Right? You think it lags the game, and frankly, I, I never really understood this argument because even the longest one take two minutes. You know, two, two minutes and twenty seconds. Those are, those are on the longer end. Most of them are done within 30 seconds. Most of them are done within 40 seconds. Um, and uh, n- now, now uh, the window for managers to to make these this, these decisions is going to be is going to be kind of truncated as well. So I, I really don't understand the the pace of play argument for it. I think it makes the game better. I think it makes the game. I think it makes everybody on the field more accountable. Um, and and I don't think you'll ever see a point where they allow players to make that what is essentially a strategic um, managerial decision on their own on the field. Because if you look at if you really want uh, people to be correct about a call, don't look at the players because they always think they're safe. Right. If they're they're the runner, absolutely. And if they're the You're fielder, right. they they always think that the guy's out. So and what if, if I said pitcher, this, they Joe? Always think it's a strike, and if they're the hitter, they always think it's a ball. So that I don't think that's so. That's what what if I said this? I don't care if we get it right. I don't think getting it right is what it's about. I think the game is starting to venture dangerously away from a point where it could never come back, where it loses the reality that it's entertainment. And the game is not as entertaining. When the game stops being entertaining, I think you've really reached a point of critical mass where you could be in a lot of trouble. And for me, I don't know of anyone who's ever gone to a game or not gone to a game because of the quality of the umpiring or the officiating. I just don't know that. So... I'm not when you say to me we got to get it right, I say my heart surgeon has to get it right. My airline pilot has to get it right. I don't care if the umpires get them all right because I think it's part of the game and I think what it's taken away, I think what it's taken away is one of the nuances of the game which is you know, managers working umpires, the argument has been legislated out of existence and I'm not for a violent argument, but it's very entertaining to see a manager, you know, lose his temper. Managers no longer lose their temper because it's become to me, just to me a little clinical, a little sterile, and I'm afraid of the sterilization of the game. Well, look, nobody goes to the game to see, like, like, like nobody goes to a restaurant, right, to see if the lights turn on. But if the lights don't turn on, then nobody eats, right? Nobody shows up right. anyway. So right. it's, it's, one, it's one of these, I, I think they probably view it as an essential of the game to get it right, to be as diligent about getting it right and as accountable to, to getting it right as possible. It's a procedural thing. It's an accountability thing. I, yeah. I don't really see the argument for getting the calls wrong. I didn't say I, pr- I want getting the calls wrong. I just don't think that you could ever have a system where you'll get enough right 
so that wrong calls aren't going to be a part of the game. And again, it's for me, it's about cost benefit. I'm just wondering, everything comes with a price. All progress, regardless of how good it is, has a price. I'm just cautious uh, as to what the price will be, because here's what I do know. There's no such thing as regulating. There's only over-regulating. And rather than taking a step back and saying, where does replay work and where does replay not work, I think that the instinct is to say, it doesn't work as good as we want it to, as well as we want it to. Let's do more. Let's do more. Let's do more. All you have to do is look at the NCAA rulebook, and it stands about four feet high because you don't necessarily, the human instinct is never to regulate. It's to just over-regulate. And that is really scary to me, being a guy who is on the field. I, I don't know if that's if that's entirely fair, though. I don't think baseball's made that their priority. Their, uh, um, their priority or their stance, right? They haven't. Um, they haven't really altered the replay rules all that much. Um, they've kind of just tinkered with what's re- what is reviewable and what isn't. Um, it seems like they've been trying to perfect the procedure um, or an operation that was pretty revolutionary at the time, instead of. Uh, really, I, I, I would say they're more trying to sculpt it than they are to add to it. Really, like what, what, what have they added to the replay system since it was implemented? That I don't know that they've added. The of making it's, it more effective. It's the specter of addition. It's the specter of contemplation every winter of how we're going to institute more replay. That kind of uh, Damocles that hangs over the head of baseball with respect to more technology when. You know, technology is great as long as it's used, you know, correctly. You know, your cell phone is great, except, you know, if you look at it 24 hours a day, it becomes something that's bad. If you're alluding to the strike zone, that's not necessarily baseball's prerogative. That's not the league's prerogative at all. You hear a lot of more of that chatter from, uh, from like, analytically inclined websites and kind of uh, these underground places like Fangraphs have really, really risen up into the mainstream, and, and they started with kind of counterculture countercultural data driven baseball publications that would just tinker with ideas and it would just you know give, give solutions for problems that didn't necessarily exist or had no kind of uh, traction in the mainstream at all now now a lot of those people are, are a lot of those ideas are running or are used to by by GMs and, and executives to run teams in terms of what kinds of players that we that they scout and which kinds of players that they build their teams around but um, I, that's where you hear a lot of barking about the strike zone, uh, at least in my in my own experience. Okay. Um, I read about it on blogs, and they they have no real affiliation with the league. Um, and like like the league has has talked about raising the strike zone a little bit, or mm-hmm. cutting up, you know, kind of cutting up parts of it to increase right. the amount of balls that are put in play. But it's not in the vein of. There are too you know, there are too many missed calls. That that's not um, that's not the perspective that they're coming from. Right, which is my so I, my I contention is that they're missing that they're missing the boat. That their their priorities yeah. are askew, and their priorities should be what really affects more of the game than anything else is flipping the count. The count going from two zero to two one as or one one to one two as opposed to two one is a big difference. And I think part of that is this personalization of the strike zone. This almost proprietary. Uh, philosophy that he, uh, that umpires have that the strike zone is theirs, um, and I'm a highball guy, or you know I you know I, there's a great uh, 
Brian Gumble special with Jerry Crawford, a longtime umpire, says what did, they asked him what he used to do with the CDs that he was sent on calls that he missed, and he said, I never looked at any of them. I threw them in the garbage. That points to, a, to a, uh, an arrogance uh, that really needs to be addressed, and I think that finds its way, it's manifest in the manner in which balls and strikes are called, but that's for another day. We're talking to Joe Trezza, beat writer. Well, yeah, well, there, there are... I'm sorry. The, the, just, just to sneak one more point, the, their reviews have become way more comprehensive in the last uh, half decade or so, and uh, umpires have been uh, kind of made more accountable behind the scenes uh, in terms of having to um, act on, like, kind of take their reviews and and then and then better themselves from them, kind of like a managerial peer review type thing. Right, right. Um, that 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 structure has been put in place by the league over the last five years or so. Um, but I'll also say that uh, it's easy kind of to, to rag on the strike zone from the center field camera point of view, right, which is not necessarily uh, always as straight on and as reflective as, um, it appears, right? It, it is a little askew uh, based on every uh, – it, it's basically different in every ballpark. So every live feed of a game that you get basically comes from a slightly different angle. Uh, I've had, had pitchers talk to me about how depending on what stadium they're pitching in, their video, their slider looks better or worse, and that's strictly based on the position of the uh, camera in center field and the angle that it comes that, – that it, that it projects the game at. So – it, there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, you talk about overregulating, and then you talk about automating the strike zone. That sounds like overregulating to me. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, you know, you know, Einstein and Oppenheimer disagreed sometimes. So you know, we could you know, <laughs> really smart people can 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 disagree. Um, I think it's a, hopefully it's a. I would just like it to be more of a fluid process where there is room for backing up or, you know, walking back some things where it doesn't seem like that's necessarily, uh, I don't think all changes for the good. And I think the really critical issue of change is really examining uh, objectively whether or not the change is necessarily for the better. Uh, overall, we're talking to Joe Trezza, St. Louis Cardinals, beat writer, uh, Staten Island kid makes good, uh, MLB.com. Joe, um, I want to switch gears a little bit on a personal note. So now you've got your first, this is your first spring training under your belt with big club, you know, just give us a couple of things that uh, you've really been impressed by. You know, I'm sure it was really cool to, to operate at the top of the food chain. Uh, just a couple of your impressions from spring training. And I'm sure you are very excited for the season and we're all excited for you. Uh, give me a couple of your, um, impressions. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm impressed with how, uh, with how many players showed up early to camp. Um, I'm impressed with how many players kind of, I, I know it's their profession and I know they're supposed to put as much effort into it as possible. Um, but I am impressed by, uh, the amount of players that put in extra work and who show up early, um, and who really prioritize the way they perform on the field, not only for their own uh, personal pride, but also because they, they understand that they uh, represent the interests of many people who are rooting for them. 
for whatever reason, right? So and I find I that a, a big improvement in the game. That is that is a part of the game that is under-publicized. That's a part of the modern-day player that people should know about, and I believe that is one way in which the game has changed very much for the better. Go ahead. They, they show up early in terms of dates, like uh, just on the schedule, but they also show up early in terms of every day. Um, they're at the complex well before sunrise, most of them. Um, they're not out at night. They're, they're baseball. I mean, obviously some people will go out at night, but, um, for the most part, they're prioritizing their health, their, their health, um, and their performance. Um, and for the most part, how accountable they are, uh, to their organization, to their fan base. So that's been really impressive to me. It's been also impressive how, uh, that that schedule kind of shifts, uh, as soon as the season starts, right? Well, once the season starts, you play mostly night games. And so you, the players go from having to show up at 7 a.m. every morning to showing up at the ballpark at around 2 mm-hmm. or two 2.30 in the afternoon. That's a really, really underappreciated uh, switch in their, in their body clock, and um, it's difficult. Um, the, 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 grind, uh, the grind of going on the road, the grind of a 162-game season, um, those demands are difficult, underpublicized, and underappreciated. Couldn't agree more. Um, the speed of the game and the difficulty of it is underappreciated and underpublicized. So, um, for those guys to know kind of what kind of journey they're about to embark on and still show up to spring training early, uh, that 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 impressed me. Um, in terms of um, other parts of of spring training, I guess it impresses me just how how many young players there are and just how much uh, depth and just how many uh, really people it takes to run a big league organization. Uh, that made me sound, make me sound green or naive, but um, there are just so many back, back channel behind the scenes yep. uh, parts of the operation that uh, you just, you, you just don't know until you're there and you just don't realize how much management and, and thought and time <laughs> and how many resources it takes to um, not only do it, but do it well. The, um, the so logistics the logistics are incredible. When you think about times teams get in, like when the season starts to, I, th- I think one of the things that'll be noteworthy is when you see your team getting in at 3 a.m. in the morning, their uniform, their, it's on a road trip, the clubhouse guy has to get there at 3 o'clock in the morning, get their stuff, put it in locker. I mean, that in and of itself to me is Herculean, that task of getting everything right every day for 162 games on the road at home. It's just amazing that you could move all that stuff so quickly. And you never hear about, you know, uniforms not showing up or, you know, the Texas Rangers didn't have their bats and balls this week. It's just incredible. Uh, It absolutely takes a village and um, it takes a lot of unsung everyday worker type of people, you know, um, who really don't get their due or get their say. You know, they, they, the, from, you know, from the, from the executives down to the bat boys, like everybody has a vital role and it's really, you really realize that most of that industry is just literally keeping the trains running on time um, so that there is a show, you know, the next day on the field. Um, and it's, it's way more difficult and way more elaborate and way more challenging than a lot of people give it credit for things. Well, let me say something. And we're talking with Joe Trezor. We're going to finish up here. I want to let you know something. Even as a kid, uh, you stood out. Um, your demeanor, the way in which you went about your business, um, you separated yourself from other kids. You know, I, I, Joe and I, probably you were probably about 16, 15 or 16 as a catcher uh, yeah. when we first encountered one another. Um, 
and you always uh, had that look in your eye like you were going to do something special. You were always bright and a little bit ahead of the curve. And uh, it was a pleasure to work with you then. And, and, and when, when we met up with the Tide, um, it was equally, uh, you know, I was so optimistic for your future because you, you really had your eye on the prize. And I knew you were going to do great things. And uh, it's really gratifying for me to have you on and to see where you are and where you're going to go. And I think this is just going to be uh, an absolute dream come true season for you. And I want to thank you very, very much for, for joining me. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tommy, and um, congratulations on all your success. And uh, I just, I may not have been able to, to express this when, when I was a kid, but um, I always really appreciated how hands-on and how cerebral you were, and it always seemed like you were coming from a place or a perspective um, that not only were no other coaches kind of coming from, and, but it was also a place where I, I knew I kind of wanted to be. Um, I just didn't necessarily know how to get there. Uh, and a lot of that kind of stems into what we started this conversation about in terms of, you know, growing up in a particular place doesn't always necessarily encourage different, different types of thought. Um, so you're one of the first people to kind of show me in, in, in an indirect way uh, what that might look like and the benefits of it. Uh, and so you, you've been, I mean, we, I'm, I'm glad we still have this relationship. I know we don't see each other all that much, but um, you're always kind of, you know, you're kind of a, an influence that took root in me pretty early. And uh, you're one of my most memorable coaches. So um, I always appreciated that. I never got to really tell you. So uh, well, that's going to change. A pleasure to do this. And I love hearing you and um, love hearing your, your thoughts on stuff. And I hope it keeps going for you. Well, it's a great dialogue. Let's continue it. Next time you're in town with the Cardinals, we're going to have you in the studio. Uh, Joe Trezza, MLB.com, St. Louis Cardinals. Beat writer Joe Trezza, MLB.com. Great guy. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, I do. Uh, great insights. Great, great insight stuff about the Cardinals in Major League Baseball. This is Tommy Weber from The Conversation with Tommy Weber saying we will see you soon. This is Fred and Florence's son saying see ya. Someday when I'm awfully low When the world is cold I will feel a glow just thinking of you And the way you look tonight Yes, your love